2 Timothy 4, 9 and following. Will you pray with me before we read? Our Father, we are deeply grateful that though the flowers of the field fade away and the grass withers, the word of our God stands forever. And that this word will accomplish the purpose to which you send it in your sovereign grace and mercy. And we ask that we will love your word and be faithful to its every precept, love every syllable of it, and we pray that the hearts of your people will be open to receiving it. And Father, for those who are here today who do not know the Lord Jesus, we pray that as your church is instructed in the word, that the Spirit of God also will work in the hearts of those who are lost, that they, as we, who have been found of you, will be found of you by grace today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Timothy 4, beginning with verse 9. This is the word of God. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I have left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message." At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Another one of those sorts of passages that generally when we read, we read through quickly and don't think much about. And you will not believe how much I'm leaving out this morning. It's a very rich and full chapter. Though difficult to outline and difficult to follow in some ways, all these little details, various people who are mentioned. But we are now coming to the last words ever penned by Paul the Apostle. Those words that we have read, these are the last. The very last words. Paul is about to die. And he was alone, abandoned by men. But though alone in one sense, Paul, as we shall see, was not alone in another. Paul urgently calls for Timothy to come to him because he was alone. Do your best, he says in verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. And he would have him come before winter. And in the first chapter of 2 Timothy, verse 4, we see an indication of his longing to see Timothy. 
As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And so there is this young preacher, Timothy, this protege of Paul, the apostle, thoroughly trained, and he wants to see him, and he wants to be with him before he dies. And we shall see that even in prison, Paul continues to do what he has charged Timothy to do, preach the word. So the first thing as we come to this text that I think we should see together is Paul deserted. Paul deserted. He is deserted by Demas. We read in verse 10, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He had been a close associate in ministry of Paul the Apostle. Now he willfully deserts Paul in the time of his greatest need. Just a few years prior, we know from reading Colossians 4.14 and Philemon verse 24, just a few years prior he had been a close ministerial associate, evidently, apparently, faithful to the gospel and faithful to Paul. And now Demas loves, it says, this world. Actually, it is this present age. This age defined by Paul in Galatians 1 as this present evil age. Uh, This time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ in which the world dominated by the evil one opposes Christ, opposes truth, opposes the gospel. Demas having heard Paul preach, having served with Paul all along must have been in love not with Jesus Christ and his coming but in life, in love with this present evil age. He loved this present age. H.C.G. Mould suggests that he was smitten with cowardice in that reign of terror. Remember, this is the time of the Neronian persecution. And rather than loving this age, he should have loved the coming of Christ. Do you remember how Paul put it in verse 8 of this chapter? Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. You and I should love his appearing. That means we should love Christ's coming, and we should love the age which is coming with that appearing. And that age which is coming should determine how we as Christians live in this present evil age. We should love Christ and his kingdom, and we should know that this world is perishing, and we should serve him in light of the return of Jesus Christ. Demas should have loved the coming and the coming age. And that should have determined his faithfulness in this present evil age, but he did not. He loved this age and not the age to come, into which all of us who really know Christ have been transferred. Demas went home. He left Paul. And it appears that he forsook not only Paul, but forsook the faith. It was all too hard for him. Now, a true Christian can never forsake Christ and truly forsake the faith. But there are many who profess that do not possess. I wonder, have you counted the cost? Have I counted the cost of what it means to be a follower of Christ? There are those in the world now who name the name of Christ who are suffering ever, ever as much as were these Christians in the Neronian persecution. And they have counted the cost and they are paying the price. So he is deserted by Demas. He also uh, is not deserted, but is lonely in the absence of Cretans and Titus because they've gone too, not for sinister reasons. 
but on ministry assignments, it would seem, to Galatia and Dalmatia, and Paul misses his ministry companions. For what we see in the end of this chapter is the very human Paul. Have you ever been lonely? Lonely in the service of Christ? Lonely for various reasons? Surely all of you have, some of you very lonely. The Apostle Paul, the human Paul, was lonely. Luke seems to have been the only companion left. We read in verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Luke, the beloved physician. And of course, the Apostle Paul would long to have his physician with him. He had been beaten, shipwrecked, he had been stoned, now he is in prison, he was evidently sickly, and now his companion Luke would serve him in all sorts of ways, undoubtedly also by giving to him medications and helping him in his various troubles. Homer Kent says this note portrays the heroism of Luke as well as the loneliness of Paul, and it does. Luke did not seem to be frightened to remain with him, even though he knew it might cost him his life as well. And then Paul longs to see Timothy and longs for him also to bring Mark. So we read in verse 11, Luke alone is with me, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me for ministry. And this is extremely instructive. Because you will remember that Mark had bitterly failed as a help to Paul on the first missionary journey. You read about that in Acts 13. And then in Acts 15, there was a falling out between the apostle Paul and Barnabas, because Barnabas wanted to take Mark along with him on the next missionary journey, and the Apostle Paul refused to have this man. He thought him fickle and faithless, and he would not have him go along. And then we read in Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24 that this very Mark is an associate of Paul the Apostle. And then here in this passage, he says that he is of good use to me. Eucrestos. The same word that is used, by the way, in chapter 2, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And now he says, Mark is useful to me. Mark failed in the Lord's service But Mark believed and repented and grew and matured, and now he is of good use to Paul the Apostle in the ministry of the gospel. So much so that he says to Timothy, I long for you to come, and when you come, bring Mark with you. Now I say that's instructive. Have you ever failed in the Lord's service? Have you ever failed so miserably, fallen so flatly upon your face in dishonoring the name of Christ And you thought there will never again be a place of service for me, even though I want to? Well, here is Mark. He failed. He failed miserably. And now he has matured. He has grown. And God used that failure in his life undoubtedly to grow him and to mature him. And now he is serving faithfully the gospel, the kingdom, and undoubtedly is willing to come to Rome also, even though it is at risk of his life. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter refers to him as, Mark my son. And so he served Paul faithfully, he served Peter faithfully, and the early church fathers would lead us to believe that Mark's gospel is written by this Mark who is repeating the words, basically, of Peter's preaching. I'd say that's quite a recovery, wouldn't you? And that there's hope for you and me when we fail, wouldn't you? 
So he longs for Timothy to come. Notice in verse 21 that he wants him to come before winter winter because there are navigation issues. He won't be able to come if he doesn't come now because he wouldn't be able to navigate the waters. Come and bring Mark. But who will take Timothy's place in Ephesus? Well, I think the indication is that it's Tychicus in verse 12. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now that's an epistolary aorist which means I am sending. Perhaps already the letter is on the way and he is carrying the letter. He's going to Ephesus where Timothy is undoubtedly to fill his spot while Timothy is with Paul. And then there's something to me that's incredibly moving. I wonder if it is to you. He says in verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. The cloak, all the commentators are agreed, was the typical cloak that would have the, the opening that would slip over like a poncho. Uh, he's in this dark Mamertine prison, undoubtedly that's the one. He's cold, winter is coming, he needs a cloak, it's damp, he needs this cloak. He's left these things behind, the books, the parchments, the cloak. Possibly he was arrested there, and he was unable to bring these things when he was arrested. He had to leave everything. So he left only with the clothes on his back. He doesn't have any of these things with him. And here the Apostle Paul, this very human apostle, says, bring the cloak and the books, and especially the parchments. Now, I understand this. We were in England recently. Oh, the, the bookshops in the north of England are a sight to behold. Old Vickers Libraries. Uh, one bookshop, I mean, everything in it was worth having. <clears throat> Special place. <laughs> so the suitcases coming back were heavier than the suitcases going over. Vicky says, what are you going to do with these? I just stuff them, you know, just stuff them. So uh, pretty heavy, but we brought them back. Yeah, every, every carpenter needs his tools. Every minister needs his books. As A.T. Robertson says, the old preacher can be happy with his books. We recall in Acts 26, 24, Festus referred to Paul's learning. And here he is in prison, and he's still learning. He's about to die, but he keeps learning. Just as you and I should continue to learn all we can about Christ and his gospel all the way to the end. Now, I can't prove this, and I'm very careful about speculation. You know that. But I think I know at least some of what he brought, what he wanted brought in those parchments. Now, the the Biblia, the books, are probably uh, papyrus uh, rolls, scrolls. The parchments, animal skins, would have been higher quality, upon which would have been written, for example, translations of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Let me ask you a question. You're in prison for the gospel. You know you're going to die. You write to your friend and say, bring me the books. What would your friend understand? Would he go to the shelf and bring Origin of the Species? Would he bring Veggie Tales? Would he bring a novel? Your friend would know. Bring me my Bible. Bring me my Bible. I'm about to die. 
I have a lot in my head, a lot in my heart, but I, I need the very words in front of me. I need to be able to read the Bible and maybe a commentary or two, something to help me understand better what I'm reading. So I have no doubt that Paul the Apostle, there in prison, about to die, is saying to Timothy, they arrested me before I could bring these things with me, and I don't have my, I don't have my, my scrolls. I don't have my Bible. Will you please bring my Bible? And maybe, maybe some things that help me, just books you know that I love that help me to, to fellowship with God. Remarkable thing. This happened again, probably has happened many times, when William Tyndale in 1535 was imprisoned because he was translating the scriptures so that you and I might have a Bible in our hands this morning. When William Tyndale was in prison, he wrote a letter to the governor of the castle. And this is what he said, I entreat your lordship and that by the Lord Jesus that if I must remain here for the winter, you would beg the commissary to be so kind as to send me from the things of mine which he has a warmer cap. I feel the cold painfully in my head. Also a warmer cloak, for the cloak I have is very thin. He has a woolen shirt of mine if he will send it. But most of all, my Hebrew Bible, grammar, and vocabulary, that I may spend my time in that pursuit. Yes, indeed. The old preacher can be happy with his books. Paul deserted. The very human Paul, cold, undoubtedly hungry, doesn't have his books. He's deserted. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present age. Secondly, Paul opposed. Paul opposed, verses 14 and 15. Paul opposed and Timothy warned. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. We don't know which Alexander this might be. It was a common name in the New Testament era. No reason to assume it's the Alexander that has already been mentioned in 1 Timothy. We don't know for sure who he was. However, in this context, it seem, seems that he testified against Paul in the courts. Literally translated, it reads, he pointed out many evil things against me. In other words, he was an accuser of Paul in court. And Paul states a solemn fact in the second part of verse 14. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. It's not an imprecation. He's not praying for that. It's a simple fact. The Lord will, apodose, it's a future indicative, undoubtedly pointing to the day of judgment. On that day of judgment when Christ comes again, he will render him his due. Because Christ will demonstrate his victory over all of his opponents. Do you know that? Yes, Paul is in prison, but the Lord Jesus Christ will demonstrate his victory over all of his enemies. And Paul the Apostle is simply leaving vengeance in the hands of God and saying it's just what will happen. But I've thought of things from Alexander's perspective as I've worked on this text. 
Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Unbeliever standing before God naked. No righteousness of Christ to hide him from the judgment. No covering. And in addition to that, having opposed God's truth, opposed God's Son, opposed Christ's atoning death, his resurrection, Paul the apostle and his ministers. Can you imagine the judgment of God on that day? As part of a minister's life, there are always those who are helpful and build up, and there are always those who wish to tear down. And Paul is opposed, and Timothy is warned about such a person. Thirdly, notice Paul abandoned. Paul abandoned. Let's read verses 16 and uh, through 18 again. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul abandoned. Those who should have stood with Paul abandoned him. This is undoubtedly before Onesiphorus arrived, before Luke arrived on the scene at his first defense, where undoubtedly the charges were first read against Paul. Those who could have testified in his defense on his behalf evidently didn't even show up. And you know, Christians we know from the early church fathers and I assume this process was already beginning here in this early time, Christians were accused of all sorts of things. They were accused of atheism because they wouldn't bow down to the gods. Uh, They were accused of um, cannibalism because of all of this talk about the body and blood of Christ. They were accused of incest because of their constant talk about brothers and sisters. Nobody seemed to understand the Christian And so Paul the Apostle perhaps was accused of some of these sorts of things, perhaps of sedition. But Paul prays for those who didn't show up. He loves them. And he says it in verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Paul lived with a forgiving heart to those who were weak, who should have been there, but weren't. He forgave them. But through it all, as Paul was abandoned, Paul was never abandoned. For he says in verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The word strengthened essentially means he was endued with power from God. God enabled Paul to fulfill his calling as a preacher so that, I think we ought to read verse 17 to mean that when he was there he preached. Look, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. I think what we are to read is this. He was there for his first defense. No one was there to stand by him, but he stood up and he boldly proclaimed Christ. He was a proclaimer of the gospel. God enabled Paul to fulfill his calling as a preacher so that evidently the Roman court heard a full proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did 
what he charged Timothy to do, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, and certainly standing before a Roman court being falsely accused and preaching the gospel was out of season, wasn't it? But he preached the gospel. Can't you see him there standing up and preaching Christ crucified and risen from the dead, fulfilling his ministry, standing before the imperial official proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar, but Christ. And he says, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Evidently a metaphor for death, possibly taken from Psalm 22 that we read earlier. Roman citizens were not thrown to lions, but if they were a judge guilty, would have to die in some other way. So it's a metaphor for death. God spared me so that I might continue to minister the gospel and to write this letter, by the way, because God intended this letter to be in your hands this morning, and so he didn't allow Paul to die. Let me repeat, you cannot die until God is done with you. That is to say, until your work for him is done, believer, you are invincible until then. And so Paul preached the gospel. Jesus is Lord, was rescued from the lion's mouth. It says in verse 6 of this chapter, I'm ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He knows he's dying. He's always, he knows he's going to die. But after all, he says in 1 Corinthians, death is mine. And then in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Now he knows he's going to die, but even that is rescue. God is going to bring him to his heavenly kingdom, and he says to him, look, look, he's filled with doxology. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Folks, remember, Paul is in prison, dark, dank, ugly, dirty, filthy, rat-infested, smelly prison. He knows he's going to die, and what does he say? To God be the glory. And I was thinking to myself, man, I have no excuse. Why am I not living every day saying to God be the glory when I can walk about freely and express my faith and preach the gospel? Shouldn't we live this way? <laughs> Fourthly, notice that Paul still has his friends. We come to verses 19 through 21. He mentions Prisca and Aquila, friends since the second missionary journey in Acts 18. They were his friends in Corinth. We could say a lot here. They were friends from way back, always faithful as a couple. Onesiphorus is mentioned in verse 19. Turn back to chapter 1, by the way, verses 16 through 18, where he says, Of this man, Onesiphorus, Chapter 116, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. 
But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. He was not ashamed of Paul's chains. He sought him out so that he could serve him and suffer with him. Co-workers are mentioned. This is chapter 4, verse 20. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Probably the Erastus mentioned in Acts 19.22, a helper along with Timothy. And then there's Trophimus. Don't know much about him, except that we do know this. This is an aside, but perhaps important for some of you. Notice what he says about Trophimus. Verse 20, who was ill, who was ill, and he left him at Miletus. And for those people who say it's always God's will to heal, let me remind you that this man was with Paul the Apostle who had the gift of healing and God didn't heal him. No charge for that. And Paul's companions in Rome send greetings. Verse 21, do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. I was reading, this is really wonderful when this happens, I was reading casually in the church father Irenaeus this week, and uh, he mentions this Linus and says that he became bishop in Rome after the death of Peter and Paul. Whether he's right in his history, I don't know, but the connection was interesting. Claudia is a feminine name, this woman that he wants to point out was a servant of Christ and helped him in ministry. You know, all we know about most of these people are their names. We don't know a lot about them. But what a privilege that their names are listed. And some of you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ and nobody's going to know who you are. You know, you're serving, you're serving faithfully. Your name is never going to be out there. But God knows your name doesn't he? The Westminster Confession of Faith on the communion of the saints says, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And I think we see that here, don't we? The communion of the saints in this passage. Now, as we come to the end of 2 Timothy, I want to bring several distinct applications. And I want to begin with the fact that in verse 22, the benediction ends with a plural you. Look at it. Verse 22, the Apostle Paul pronounces a benediction, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. The Lord be with your spirit is singular because he's addressing Timothy, but in the Greek text, grace be with you is plural. Why? He's writing Timothy, but he knows it's God's Word, and he knows that people like you are going to read it. So he not only wants Timothy to benefit, he wants you to benefit. So how do we benefit? It raises the question, what should we take from 2 Timothy as we now come to the end of our study? I want to say four things. First, It's a call to stand for the gospel. 2 Timothy is a call to stand for the gospel. Alone, if necessary. 
So, Timothy, you are to preach the gospel. You are called to be a preacher. And God continues to call preachers through history until Christ comes again, who are called to preach in season and out of season. But you also, people of God, who may have a different calling, are nonetheless called to stand for Christ when it's in season and when it is out of season. And today in our culture, it is very much out of season. And so you were called to stand for the gospel, even if alone. Secondly, it's a call to pass down the gospel and all of God's truth. Remember, the pastoral epistles are about straightforward leadership against false teaching and passing down the truth to future generations. As J.C. Ryle said, always wanting something new is a mark of a diseased soul. So we are called, as countercultural as it is, to pass down the truth, to teach and believe full-bodied, full-blooded Christianity. So the question, will our children know the Lord? Will the faith be passed down to them? Will we be faithful to pass the sacred trust to faithful men who will teach the truth to other faithful men? These are the questions that confront us when we read First and Second Timothy. And so I say to you, Covenant Presbyterian Church, do not compromise the uniqueness of the gospel. Do not compromise God's truth. Will you be faithful? Will you guard the trust? Will you pass it down? Because that's the call that comes to us from 2 Timothy. Thirdly, Coming to the end of 2 Timothy, there is a call to know the times in which we live and minister. Remember verse 1 of chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Authorized version, perilous times will come. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And that's happening in our day. It happened big time in the day of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So that there was what what he called the downgrade in the Baptist Union. That is to say, theology, the truth as it was in Jesus, was not being believed any longer. Falsehood was was being preached as if it were true. All sorts of compromises were happening. And that great man, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great man was censored by the Baptist Union for standing for the Christian faith. Two weeks after, he preached a sermon... And I reread portions of it this week. And I'm going to read some of what he said. We must defend the faith, for what would have become of us if our fathers had not maintained it? If confessors, reformers, martyrs, and covenanters had been recreant to the name and faith of Jesus, where would have been the churches of today? Must we not play the man as they did? If we do not, we are not. Are we not censoring our fathers? Here is the day for the man. Where is the man for the day? We who have had the gospel passed to us by martyr hands dare not trifle with it, nor sit by and hear it denied by traitors who pretend to love it, but inwardly abhor every line of it. When I think of how others have suffered for the faith, a little scorn or unkindness seems a mere trifle 
not worthy of mention. An ancestry of lovers of the faith ought to be a great plea with us to abide by the Lord God of our fathers and the faith in which they lived. As for me, I must hold the old gospel. I can do no other. God helping me, I will endure the consequences of what men think obstinacy. Look, you sirs, there are ages yet to come. If the Lord does not speedily appear, there will come another generation and another, and all these generations will be tainted and injured if we are not faithful to God and to his truth today. We've come to a turning point in the road. If we turn to the right, mayhap our children and our children's children will go that way. If we turn to the left, generations yet unborn will curse our names for having been unfaithful to God and to his word. I charge you not only by your ancestry, but by your posterity, that you seek to win the commendation of your master, that though you dwell where Satan's seed is, you yet hold fast his name and do not deny his faith. God grant us faithfulness for the sake of the souls around us. How is the world to be saved if the church is false to her Lord? How are we to lift the masses if our fulcrum is removed? If our gospel is uncertain, what remains but increasing misery and despair? Stand fast, my beloved, in the name of God. I, your brother in Christ, entreat you to abide in the truth. Quit yourselves like men. Be strong. The Lord sustain you for Jesus' sake. And that's a clarion call to us today. And I wish I had time. I wish I had time. But just to mention, after Spurgeon's death, not that long after, the church went back into the Baptist Union. And the Baptist Union had not repented. They're not in it today. Because Peter Masters, the present pastor, is a faithful man. took them back out. A call to know the times, folks. Fourthly, it's a call to unbelievers to believe the gospel. Paul's attitude toward his gospel explains why he was willing to go to prison and suffer for it. He had seen the risen Christ. He had been a blasphemer. He had been saved by grace. He had seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And now he is willing to suffer incredibly for the sake of that gospel and to find all of his comfort in Jesus Christ as Lord. How can you doubt the divine power of the gospel? And the Apostle Paul wants his church to preserve these things for a number of reasons, but one of those reasons is because we have a gospel to preach to the world. Lost men and women who need Jesus Christ, are you among them? And the Apostle Paul preached what we preach, Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead. And if you're lost here this morning, Second Timothy says to you, come to Jesus Christ. Trust Him alone for your redemption. Well, I said four things, but let me add a fifth. Second Timothy calls you and me to end well. 
to end well. I said last week I want to be able to look my wife in the face and say, Honey, am I ending well? Have I ended well? I want you, my friends, to be able to stand over me and to say, We fought the good fight together. I want to look at my Lord and say, I've failed and I've fallen in many ways. I'm saved only by grace, only by mercy. But I want to hear his word to me. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. Do you want that? It's a call to end well. And if you'll open your Bibles again to chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Most of you have ESVs in your hands. If not, the Pew Bible is an ESV. I want us to read these words aloud together. I meant 2 Timothy, the passage we're in, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. 2 Timothy 4, 6. You ready? Let's read aloud. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Will you make those words your words? Will you be determined by the grace of God to end well? A.T. Robertson in his little book, Epics Epics in the Life of Paul, says this about the end of Paul's life. Listen to it. The story is that Paul was beheaded on the Ostian Road. We may picture the event in a possible manner. One day in late spring or early June, the executioners came to Paul's dungeon and led him out of the city. One is reminded of Jesus as he bore his cross along his Via Dolorosa. Paul is a condemned criminal would be the victim of the rabble sport. He would have no defender. We do not know if Luke was with Paul to the very last. We may at least hope so. If he could, he would surely walk along as near Paul as would be allowed. But no band of Christians followed with him now. He was going out of Rome on his way to the true eternal city. He knew Rome well, but his eyes were fixed on other things. Outside the city, the busy, merry life of the time went on. The crowds flowed into town. Some were going out. Paul was only a criminal going to be beheaded. Few, if any, of the crowds about would know or care anything about him. At a good place on the road, some miles out, the executioner stopped. The block was laid down. Paul laid his head upon it. The sword or axe was raised. The head of the greatest preacher of the ages rolled upon the ground. Tradition says that a Roman matron named Lucina buried the body of St. Paul on her own land beside the Ostian Road. Be that as it may, no Christian can come to Rome, especially by the Ostian Road, without tender thoughts of Paul, the matchless servant of Jesus. It is hard to leave Paul without a thought of Peter, whose martyrdom was probably at Rome and may have been not far from the same time. Paul is dead. Peter is dead. Soon Jerusalem will be in ruins. The temple of Jehovah will be no more. 
But the kingdom of Jesus has girt the Mediterranean Sea and has taken root all over the Roman Empire. Paul lived to see his dream of a world empire for Christ largely realized. All of which reminds us that Paul was not alone, was he? And you, Christian, are not alone, are you? And we, church of Jesus Christ, are not alone. For Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.